Uh, welcome to Praxis. My name is Justin. I am the lead pastor here. You are at the uh, Praxis Tempe Mission, and uh, uh, it, is a, it is a joy to have you. We still have some folks that are uh, standing up in the back who need seats. So uh, again, if you can kind of squeeze in towards the middle and make some seats on the aisles, it makes it easier for them to, uh, to, to take a seat. Um, this week, we are in week two of our series that we've called Question Everything. And uh, we, what we're doing is we... we surveyed you, our people, and said, hey, talk to non-Christians that you know, um, non-Christians that uh, you are related to, you live with, whatever, and uh, uh, ask them what their problems with Christianity are, what their questions are, what their objections are. And so we got dozens of responses. Apparently, everybody's got a problem with Christianity. So um, we took the top 12 questions, uh, and I am addressing the top three uh, from the stage. Last week, we answered the question, how can we trust the Bible? And uh, I feel pretty confident that you all now trust the Bible completely. And so uh, this week, we are talking about um, how can Jesus be the only way to God? That is a central claim of Christianity. And so we're going to talk about that this evening. And then next week, uh, we are going to answer the question, why are there so many hypocrites in church? So if you're a hypocrite, don't plan on coming next week. You're going to hate it, I promise. So um, that's what we're discussing. The next nine questions are being addressed on our blog at praxischurch.com. Uh, three of the questions went up last week, three this week, and three the following week. They are all getting good interaction and, and comments and stuff. So I would encourage you to go to the blog and, uh, and check that out. Tonight, we are going to answer a very fundamental question. And last week, I said that the question of uh, the trustworthiness of Scripture was a great place to start because the bulk of what we know about God in this world comes from the Bible. At least as Christians, we kind of find our center at Scripture. We um, know about God from Scripture. We know about the world. We know about how we're supposed to interact with each other, largely from the teachings of the Bible. And so if the Bible itself is not trustworthy, then the things that we know from it by extension, are not trustworthy either. It's perfect for us to tackle this question about Jesus being the only way to God as our second week because there is nothing more central to Christianity than the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of your Bible points towards Jesus. The Old Testament points forward towards his coming and describes him as, a, as the coming Messiah. The Gospels tell of his life and interaction, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. Um, and then Acts and the Epistles talk about the implications of his life, death, and resurrection. And Revelation tells of his second coming. Jesus is the central figure in Christianity. If Jesus is not who he said he was, the rest of Christianity crumbles to the ground and is pointless, useless, and a waste of time. It all hinges on who Jesus is. So, we ask the question, how can Jesus be the only way to God? This is a very important question. This is uh, a popular question in the last, specifically in the last just couple hundred years. Um, but anytime a pastor goes on to the Larry King show, the first thing they're asked is, do people uh, who are outside of Christianity, people that don't believe in Jesus, do they get to go to heaven? And that is kind of a defining question for uh, the pastors they get asked. And, and everybody gets asked this, from Rick Warren to the Pope to Bono, right? They all, somehow they're all lumped together. I don't know how that happened, but uh, um, they all get asked that question. And 
it is somewhat of a defining question in our culture because if that person responds, yes, they, people can be saved outside of a relationship with Jesus, in that moment they step outside of historical Orthodox Christianity. That Christians for 2,000 years, beginning with the disciples all the way through church history, have universally believed without question that in order to be saved, in order to be in heaven for eternity with God, one must profess faith in Jesus Christ. That is historical Orthodox Christianity. And so when people answer that question outside of that, whether right or wrong, they do step out of historical Orthodox Christianity. And so it's good for us to understand that. Now, this question is largely a product of the Enlightenment. In the 18th century, in Southern and Western Europe, there was a philosophical movement called the Enlightenment, in which reason and individualism emerged as the, the focus of all knowledge and insight and learning, basically moved from the supernatural to the natural, and elevated the reason of man to the most primary source of knowledge. That basically argued that we can, mankind can, through science, through logic, understand the universe and we don't need anything else. We don't need a God. We don't need a divine being. We don't need a spiritual, supernatural understanding of the universe. We can understand it with a purely natural, scientific, logical mind. We can do that. So... From the Enlightenment produced Western philosophy, produced Western culture, produced pluralism, produced individualism, produced all these things that arrive, that, that make us arrive at today where a very prominent question in our Western culture is, how can Christians claim that Jesus is the only way to God? Now, you cannot ask that question in a vacuum. Nobody simply arrives on the scene with no cultural um, implications, no cultural biases whatsoever, and goes, how can Jesus be the only way to God? Every person who honestly asks that question does so based on a set of presuppositions that they understand govern the universe. Now, I'm going to go through five of these presuppositions. My goal in going through these presuppositions is not to argue um, that they are false some, some I will more than others. My, but my primary goal is not to show that they are wrong, but to show that they are simply a different belief system. That every atheist, every agnostic, every pluralist, every universalist makes the statements, the doctrines, asks the questions that they do based on a set of beliefs. It may not be as concrete as they think it is. Okay? So, we'll go through these five assumptions. First, the broad assumption, all religions are equally valid. Okay? The argument goes like this. You look at all of the world's religions and they are all valid and we must all um, uh, recognize them as valid alternatives to one another. That none is more preeminent than the other. That they are all equally valid. And, and I will start by saying this. You don't believe that. You simply do not believe that. Many of you have said that. They're all valid. They're all equal. Why can't we all just get along and hug? Um, they, you don't actually believe that. What you mean is all major religions that form this subset of religions are all equally valid. You have, I think rightfully so, ruled out, marginalized 
Many of the world's religions, in fact, hundreds if not thousands of the world's religions have been marginalized from that argument that all religions are valid. For instance, I think very few of you would argue that the Heaven's Gate cult from the 90s is a valid and equally valid religion. If you remember, they were in Southern California and they were all, it was kind of a Christian cult, a, a splinter group. They had some Judeo-Christian ethics, but believed that a spaceship was coming from with aliens to take them to heaven. That's just crazy, okay? <laughs> that cult ended with all their followers committing mass suicide after putting on their black sweatshirts, black sweatpants, black Nikes, putting $5 and quarters into their pocket. I don't know why. Maybe it's the fare to get to heaven. Um, and, and committing mass suicide. I don't think any of us would make the argument that that cult, that religion is equally valid with Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism, which are kind of the world's major religions. None of us are going to make that argument. Um, a pastor friend of mine often um, points out a nudist arsonist cult that he once heard of. They just got naked and burned stuff. That's not valid, right? Like, that's not valid. And if you think it is, leave before you get naked and burn us down, okay? We don't actually think that all religions are equally valid. We have chosen a subset of religions and said, maybe these five, or maybe these six, or maybe we've got ten. And my guess is you haven't put much thought into how you arrived at which groups are in and which groups are out. You probably haven't gone, well, they need to have this many followers or have been around for this long or be um, influencers in this many cultures or have been uh, you know, transformed this many, whatever. You probably haven't done that work. You've just kind of done the lazy work and said, oh yeah, all religions are equally valid. Which you don't believe and you can't prove. So the statement that all religions are equally valid sounds beautiful. It sounds accepting, it sounds very open-minded, it sounds very politically correct, but it is a statement of faith. You cannot prove objectively, scientifically, using measurements, you cannot prove that all religions are equally valid. It is a statement of faith that you make. You believe that all religions are equally valid. Okay? Whether that's right or wrong, I, I, that's not what I want to argue at this moment. What I'm saying is, I need you to admit that that is a statement of Faith. Statement of faith. Number two. All religions basically teach the same thing and lead to the same God. Now, this is often illustrated by a mountain that has many paths, but all those paths lead to the top of the same mountain. And we go, oh, see, all religions are basically the same. They all teach basically the same things, and they all lead to the same God. Now, this too is largely a product of laziness because it would only take about 20 minutes on Wikipedia to find out that there are in fact massive differences between the world's religions. For instance, Hinduism believes in the unity of all things. It teaches that the purpose of life is to realize that we are a part of God. And by doing so, we can leave this plane of existence and rejoin with God. This enlightenment can only be achieved by going through cycles of birth, life, and death. One's progress towards enlightenment is measured by his or her karma. This is the accumulation of one's good and bad deeds, which defines where you will wake up next. So Hinduism basically teaches that there are, in fact, a pantheon of gods, a, a multitude of gods, and you live your life by some moral code as dictated by Hindu sacred scripture, and when you die, 
the next moment you open your eyes and you have been reincarnated as something else. Now, if you lived your life well, by this moral standard well, you will wake up and you will have taken a step forward up the karmic evolutionary chain. And perhaps you find yourself as some noble person or some rich person or some um, uh, gifted person in your next life. But if things didn't go so well and you were naughty, You'll make your, you'll wake up the next morning and find that you are the dog of a wealthy person or a gifted person or a popular person. It is a moralistic reincarnating religion based on a pantheon of gods. Right or wrong, not what I'm arguing. But it is a very particular worldview that tells you that you must live your life right because you will die and then you will be reincarnated as a new being in your next life based on the decisions of these gods and their moral code. Okay? Uh, let's go with uh, uh, Mormonism. We're in Arizona. <laughs> According to Brigham Young, Brigham Young says, No man or woman in this dispensation will ever enter into the celestial kingdom of God without the consent of Joseph Smith. Every man and woman must have the certificate of Joseph Smith, Jr., as a passport to their entrance into the mansions where God and Christ are. He, Joe, reigns there as supreme, a being in his sphere, capacity calling as God does in heaven. So we've got Hinduism, pantheon of gods, moral life results in reincarnation. We've got Mormonism, one God, G and Jesus, and Joseph Smith apparently, who decides if you get to go into the celestial kingdom. Very different worldview. Number three, let's go with Judaism. Judaism is based on the old law, the Old Testament, and you must abide by a moral law. You must abide by a religious system, making the proper sacrifices, celebrating the proper feasts. And at the end of your life, you will stand before an omnipotent, judging God who will judge you based on the moral life you lived, your adherence to the law, your adherence to the sacrifices, and your love and faith in God. Very different. One God, different moral law, different ending. Okay? Buddhism. Buddhism doesn't even believe in God. Buddhism believes that you have the power within you. Specifically, Zen Buddhism believes in a process of self-actualization. That you can look within yourself and through meditation and through concentration, you can bring out the God within you. There is no God. And definitely no personal creator omnipotent God. Islam. Islam has a, a series of a moral code that one must live. At the end of the day, Allah will look at your life. And if you lived up to Allah's moral code, He will then let you into His afterlife. And because we're doing world religions, and it's funny, Scientology. <laughs> this faith is based on the belief that 75 million years ago, an evil intergalactic ruler named Zenu was concerned about the mass overpopulation of the universe. Consequently, he massacred the populations of 76 planets, froze them, and transported them to Earth. On Earth, he put them into volcanoes and exploded them with atom bombs. However, their souls, called thetons, were blown apart and left to hover about looking for new bodies to inhabit. Thetons can move in and out of bodies at will and now inhabit human bodies. Really different. 
So in just this broad swath of major religions, you have pantheon of gods, you have one god, you have no god, and aliens. Radically different understanding of who God is. Radically different understanding of worldview. Radically different understanding of how we are to react to the many gods, one God, no God, aliens. You have many, I mean, it's a completely different system. Every single one of them. Now, the person would argue, well, yes, 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 but you could all distill all that down to maybe one primary truth or a a few primary truths that they all agree upon, like love. They all, at their core, are love, and we should just love and, and love, which is an oversimplification to begin with. But secondly, this is a statement of faith in which you say, Doctrine doesn't matter. That God, whatever you conceive of him may be, many, one, or none, or aliens, whatever that is, doesn't actually care about teachings, doesn't actually care about the details, it cares about one thing, and that's love. Now, again, that may be true, that may not be true, but you can't prove it. It's a statement of belief. It's a statement of faith. You take a step of faith when you make that claim. Okay? Number three, each religion tells an important part of the story, but none has the whole thing. And this um, argument is, is, uh, uses the parable of the blind men and the elephant, which goes like this. Six blind men were asked to determine what an elephant looked like by feeling different parts of the elephant's body. The blind man who feels a leg says the elephant is like a pillar. The one who feels the tail says the elephant is like a rope. The one who feels the trunk says the elephant is like a tree branch. The one who uh, feels the belly says the elephant is like a wall. And the one who feels the tusk says the elephant is like a solid pipe. And the wise man explains to them, all of you are right. The reason every one of you is telling it differently is because each one of you touched a different part of the elephant. So actually, the elephant has all these different parts. And so the moral of the story is every religion tells a part of the story, but nobody tells the whole story. We all just know our little parts. Now, this sounds very open-minded, it sounds very inclusive, it sounds very postmodern. The problem is, is that it also sounds incredibly arrogant. Because it assumes that there is somebody who has sight and can see the elephant and these poor religious blind people who can't see anything but their leg or their belly or their trunk. But there is somebody who stands outside of that, the lone person in the story who has sight. And it's incredibly arrogant because we'd all go, well, that's me. Clearly that's me. And all you Christians are blind and you just got a trunk and you Muslims are blind and you just got a leg. But I see, I, (laughs) I can see the whole thing. Horribly arrogant position to, to be in. And again, unprovable and a statement of faith. Number four, there is no such thing as absolute truth. And to say otherwise is either arrogant or worse, ignorant, says the atheist. Absolutely. Clearly, the problem with making absolute statements relativizing the beliefs of everyone else is contradictory and inconsistent. To say that truth, if it even exists, is unknowable, and that's for sure, 
is by nature a contradiction. By nature a contradiction. It doesn't hold up to logic. So not only is that a statement of belief, but it's a clearly disprovable statement of belief, which is the worst kind. Number five, all beliefs are culturally conditioned Therefore, none could be said to be universal. The argument goes like this. Um, I am probably a Christian because I grew up in America and my parents were Christian. They sent me to Christian school and they took me to Christian church. But if I had grown up in the Middle East, I probably would not have been Christian because I wouldn't have had Christian parents or Christian school or Christian church to go to. And so we cannot say that Christianity is superior because it's probably culturally conditioned. Okay, The philosopher... Uh, Alvin Plantiga responds this way, says, suppose we concede that if I had been born of Muslim parents in Morocco rather than Christian parents in Michigan, my beliefs would have been quite different. But the same goes for the pluralist. If the pluralist had been born in Morocco, he probably wouldn't be a pluralist. Does it follow that his pluralist beliefs are produced in him by an unreliable belief-producing process? You can't say all claims about religions are historically conditioned except for the one I'm making right now. In other words, if you are making the claim that all religions are biased, therefore none could be universal, all religions must include your faith claim that all religions are culturally biased and unreliable. Because it is a product of your Western post-enlightenment Western culture, individualistic, reason-elevated uh, upbringing that led you to, to the belief in pluralism. And you cannot step out of that any more than I can. Okay? And again, this is a belief. You cannot prove that simply because something is culturally conditioned, or even if it was culturally conditioned, that it therefore cannot be universal. It's a statement of faith. Okay. The irony in all of this is that all of these arguments, which are meant to either disprove the existence of God or disprove the reliability of religion or disprove or, or, or at least um, demotivate people from following a particular faith, all of these statements, all of these presuppositions that we've gone through form in and of themselves a religion that has a full doctrine with a description of God. Someone who says that God is unknowable or God um, doesn't care about the details of doctrine or that God looks down upon all creation and, and believes that all religions are valid, that God is a very particular God. It's a God that doesn't matter what you call Him. It's a God that doesn't matter how you respond to Him. Doesn't, uh, it doesn't matter if you believe in Him or reject Him or hate Him or mock Him. It doesn't matter if you follow Him or obey Him, disobey Him, fight wars in His name, create peace in His name, are evangelistic, are not evangelistic, think it's a guy, think it's a girl, think it's a dog, think it's a son, think it's a nothing, think it's anything. You have created a God that looks down on creation and goes, I don't care. Do whatever you want. Sounds like a pretty fun God. Sounds like a pretty fun God. The irony in it, though, is that um, what you have created largely is a God that remarkably reflects yourself. That God is what you want God to be. That God wants from you surprisingly, what you already want to do with your life. 
The God thinks morally the same way you think morally. The God believe, this God believes that certain things are good and certain things are bad that remarkably you think are good and bad. Let's call it what it is. It's, it's Nancyism. It's Jimism. It's Stanism. It's, it's whatever your name is and throw an ism on the end. You have created a religion that reflects your values. You have created a God in your own image. And I think that our natural human experience tells us that's wrong. I think it does. I think when we say things like all religions are equally valid or none should make uh, objective truth claims or they're all culturally conditioned, therefore none can be universal. I I don't think we make those statements having really put a ton of thought in them. I think we say them because they sound inclusive. I think we say them because they sound politically correct. But I don't think we put a lot of thought into them because if we really thought about it, our human experience tells us that cannot be true. Um, I've used this illustration before, but I think it's fitting. Um, if I went home tonight and uh, um, the baby was asleep and, and my wife and I just uh, had some time together and I sat her down and I just said, you know what, um, Lindsay, I, I, I love you. I love you so much. I've, I've always loved you. I, I love everything about you. I love your long brown hair. I love your big green eyes. I love you, how artistic you are. I love, um, I love that you're from Mexico. I love all these things. If I just said that, like, I just love this all about you. First, she'd slap me. Then she'd take our child and leave me. Why? Um, Because my wife's name is Emily, and she has blonde hair and blue eyes, and she's not really that artistic. And (laughs) she's not from Mexico. She's from California. And so everything I said about her was wrong. I mean, I profess love. I said, man, I love you so much, baby. I love you. You're my world. I love you. I I love you so much. Lindsay? (laughs) See, I, I think that there is nobody in here who would accept that as love. And and I know there's some needy people in here, but none of you, (laughs) none of you would accept that as love. Our human experience tells us otherwise. And and our human experience disproves these assumptions that we have, these faith statements that we make. And there's nobody in here that would, that would think, if we really, really thought about it, think, yeah, you know what, I bet God is in heaven. doesn't matter what we call him, how we describe him, how we react to him, what we do in his presence, what we do in his name. I don't think God cares. Because you would. You'd care. And everybody you know would care. And everything about you tells you that that could not be true, or else it would be radically inconsistent with every moment of your life. I just don't think that's true. See, the agnostic sounds very wise and very scientific and, and very um, uh, provable. And it, it, the agnostic sounds very good oftentimes, but really the agnostic is not doing anything different than the pluralist and nothing different than the universalist. The agnostic is doing the exact same thing when the agnostic says, we can't know. We can't know really who God is. We, there's no way that we could know. So I'm just an agnostic. I, I think there probably is a God, but we, we can't know who that God is. And it sounds like, well, that's pretty balanced and pretty fair. But it creates a doctrine of God just the same way the pluralist and the universalist and the Christian and the Muslim and the Buddhist and everybody else. 
Because by saying that we cannot know God, you are saying something about God. You are saying either that He has no interest in revealing Himself to us, that He cannot reveal Himself to us, He's unable to do it, or He doesn't want to do it, or He hasn't figured out how to do it, or He doesn't like us enough to go through the hassle of doing it. But whatever that is, you have created a doctrine of God. You've said God can't or won't or will not or should not reveal Himself to creation. You've created this impersonal, distant, kind of Plato's unmoved mover. Just kind of got the thing started and walked away and He's off to another planet. He's hanging out with Xenu or whatever, right? So um, you've created this God. You've given Him attributes. You've talked about the way He functions or doesn't function. Now you've said radically less than most world religions. But you have made a doctrine of God. And it is a doctrine based on faith. That is an unprovable doctrine. So, again, my my goal here tonight is not necessarily to, um, to argue that these assumptions are wrong necessarily. But what I, what I grow weary of is the agnostic, pluralist, universalist, the, the non-believer saying, man, I, I could never be a Christian because I could never just take that blind leap of faith. And you guys, you, you just throw your brains out the window and just, and just, it's all about faith. You just gotta believe. It doesn't make sense. You just gotta believe. I grow weary of that because as Tim Keller calls it, all of you are simply making a, a leap of doubt. You have formulated a religion unto yourself that you cannot prove any more than I can prove Christianity. That is no more objective than Christianity. That is no more measurable than Christianity. There's no more scientific than Christianity. You have walked as far as your brain will take you and then go, um, all religions are equally valid. Or, um, they all teach part of the truth. Or, uh, God is unknowable. Statement of faith. Statement of faith. That is your religion. That is your belief. You cannot prove it. You cannot prove it. Okay. So all I want is for us to acknowledge that we all have belief systems. Everybody in the world has a belief system that which major portions of are unprovable. And they are just simply statements of faith. So please, please. Never again look down on a religious person for their faith before you really assess the things that you believe that are just statements of faith. Now, you may be thinking, but Justin, I know for a fact that Christians didn't even believe that Jesus was the Son of God until 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea because the world-renowned scholar Dan Brown told me so. One of the central claims in the uh, fantastic book, uh, The Da Vinci Code, is that uh, Jesus was just a human, and it was not until the 4th century when a pagan Roman emperor named Constantine um, decided to call a council of bishops, and they voted on the divinity of Jesus. In The Da Vinci Code, one of the characters, a man by the name of Lee Teabing, says this, Until that moment of history, Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. He goes on to say that at the Council of Nicaea, they voted on the divinity of Jesus, and he says it was a 
close vote. Council of Nicaea happened in 325. That's fact. Constantine was a major influencer and the one that made the Council of Nicaea possible. That is a fact as well. Constantine was at the Council of Nicaea. That is a fact as well. It is also a fact that the Council of Nicaea was the very first ecumenical council of that scale ever to exist in the history of Christianity. 325 years in, the whole of Christianity had yet to gather together because the 300 years previous, they had endured massive persecution and death. In fact, until the year 312, when Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which ended all persecution of Christians, up until 312, Christians were heavily persecuted in Roman Empire. In fact, one of the bishops that attended the Council of Nicaea attended that council without his hands. Because some years before, as a result of Roman persecution of Christianity, they had been chopped off. And in the course of 13 years, from the Edict of Milan to the Council of Nicaea, the Roman Empire went through a massive shift. Massive shift. Imagine that man having had his hands removed for his faith, now dining with the emperor at an ecumenical council. This was a watershed moment in the history of Christianity because it was the first time that all those bishops, bishops from the East, bishops from the West, could gather together safely to be the Christian leadership of the church safely without fear of persecution. You might be thinking, wow, 325 years, that's a long time. A lot can happen in those years. That's true. But you have to remember a couple things. One, as we talked about last week, communication was not then what it is now. Communication was slow. Communication was oftentimes arbitrary. And you had a Christian church which was spread out over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. Let alone the fact that those people doing the communication were oftentimes um, persecuted and caught and killed along the way, delivering letters, delivering communication from church to church, from leader to leader. That this was an underground church largely that interacted in kind of behind the scenes ways. And so communication was not always possible at all. And so Constantine gathered this first council and they talked about a great many things. They talked about the canon of scripture as we, we talked about last week. They, they did talk about the divinity of Jesus, but not for very long. In fact, most historians don't even list the divinity of Jesus as one of the primary topics of the council of Nicaea. And it really was only a topic because of a man named Arius. Arius was a man who taught that Jesus was great. We should worship Jesus. Jesus is awesome, but he is a step below God the Father. This was largely known as Arianism, after Arius. So there was some discussion. There was some interaction on it. But at the end of the day, of the almost 300 participants of the Council of Nicaea, they in the end voted on the Nicene Creed, a comprehensive creed that they could, that could, they could use to unite the church from east to west, which stated that Jesus was very God of very God. Of those 300 or so bishops, only two did not sign. Arius and friend of Arius. (laughs) Two out of 300. I I don't know who thinks two out of 300 is a close vote, but it's simply not the historical record. Now, they would argue that it was not until the Nicene Creed that, that Jesus was thought to be divine and that, as Dan Brown says, that his followers, Jesus' followers, until 325, all believed that Jesus was a man, a mere mortal. 
You would think then that the historical record, because we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters and, and passages and writings and journals of the early church fathers, you would think that this would reflect this doctrine that Jesus was just a mere mortal. If it was as widespread as Mr. Brown would have us believe, you'd think that that would be a part of the historical record, but it's not. Not only does it not say that Jesus was just a mere man, we have dozens and dozens and dozens of quotes that's, that call Jesus God very clearly. Dozens and dozens. And I don't want to go through them all tonight, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to post them on the blog tomorrow so you can go and see these quotes. Some of them as early as um, uh, Ignatius, who was born in 30 A.D. and was a contemporary of Peter and Paul and John that, and that second generation of disciples. We have quotes from Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Tatian, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Caius, Novatian, Athanasius, Eusebius, Augustine, Origen, and Cyril of Alexandria. And if nothing else, they, we know that they had way better names back then. <laughs> We've got 300 years worth of early church fathers calling Jesus God, acknowledging that Jesus was divine, acknowledging that Jesus was the Son of God. 300 years of the early church teaching that as doctrine, accepting that universally, passing that on from church to church, east to west and back again, believing it, teaching it, discipling it. This was the belief of the early church. And if you don't believe the early church, Scripture. The disciples themselves, Romans 9, 5, Paul says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul saying, Jesus is God over all. Pretty explicit. Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Son of God was an Old Testament name given to the coming Messiah that was universally used as a reference to the divinity of the Messiah. Colossians 1.15. He is the image. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is God in the flesh. God that we can see. The early church, the disciples, Jesus himself in John 14. Turn there and we'll finish here. John chapter 14. Starting in verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Some of your translations may say, you believe in God, and that's that's the sense of it. You already believe in God. Believe also in me, because I am God. An argument he will make here in a moment. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas goes, you forgot to give us directions. We don't know. We don't, you're going somewhere to your father's house. Jesus says, you know the way. Thomas goes, no, you forgot. We, you didn't tell us. What's the way? And it's important for us to understand what Thomas's question really is. He's saying, 
This is a, this is a very religious question that he's asking. He goes, you didn't tell us the process. You didn't tell us the way. You didn't tell us the how. You didn't give us the mechanism. You didn't pass on the religion. This is a question that would have made a lot of sense to a Jew, Muslim, to a Mormon, to a Muslim, which I already said. <laughs> They'd really get it. This is a religious question. Thomas just goes, what's the religion? Give me the mechanism. Give me the process. You forgot to tell us the directions. It's important because Jesus answers very differently. Verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus goes all exclusive on us here. Jesus, Jesus gets all, I'm exclusively the way to God here. He says, no one can come to the Father except through me. But, but I want you to notice the way he answers Thomas. Thomas's question was, I want the way. I want the process. I want the religion. I want the steps. I want the means to attain the moral standing so that you must accept me. The way Judaism taught, the way Islam taught, the way Mormonism taught. I want the way so that when I stand before the judge, I can bear my goods, I can tell him what I've done and not done, and then I can be accepted based on how well I have adhered to his process. Jesus does not say, I know the way, I've taught you the way, I will teach you the way. I know the truth. I can tell you the truth. You too can know the truth. He didn't say, I know the way to life. I know the process to attain life. Jesus did not come down from heaven, first look down and go, man, they got this religion, this religion, this religion, and they're all close, but they don't quite get it. They need my new religion. He did not say, well, I just need to come and tweak Judaism. To make it a better religion. Jesus came down and in response to Thomas's religious question, looking for a system, looking for a process, looking for a religion, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through my system, except through my religion, except through my way to do things, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I'm not here to start a religion. I'm not here to start a new way, a new process. I am here to be that way, to be that life, to be that truth. And it is all about Jesus. Now, I think that, I think that most of us don't ask the question, how can Jesus be the only way to God primarily from our minds? 
I, I don't think that we do. And I don't mean to say that it would be stupid for you to do so or that you're being brainless. I'm not, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that I don't think that concern is primarily an intellectual concern. I think that question, how can Jesus be the only way to God, is a question from the heart. I think it's a question born out of a love and concern for the people around you that don't believe in Jesus. I think it comes out of a desire to broaden the way. It comes from a desire to make more people included, not less. It's not some insidious thing that you are trying to accomplish. It's not a negative thing at all. In fact, it's, it's admirable. It's, it's loving. It's caring that you would want to widen that group. But, but somewhere in the back of my head, and, and I don't know what this is. Maybe this is just my Christian upbringing. Maybe this is the spirit. Maybe this is the word. I, I don't know what this is. But somewhere in the back of my head, I hear Jesus going, what about me? What about me? Why did I look down on my creation in love, leave heaven where I was worshipped day and night by all the angelic beings? Why would I leave heaven to come to earth to be born in a crap town with a nowhere family to live in absolute obscurity in the Middle East for 30 years to grow up to then walk around, live a sinless life, stand before political and religious officials, be mocked, be beaten, have a crown of thorns pressed into my scalp? Why would I have my, have, have my back lashed with whips one whip away from death? Why would I allow mere mortals to mock me openly? Why would I carry a heavy wooden cross up a hill only to be laid upon it and have nails driven into my wrists and into my ankles to be hung on a cross? Why, why would I do that? And even more, why would I take upon myself the sins of the world, past, present, and future? Why would I go through all of that just so you could reject me and mock me and ignore me and call my followers foolish and call them stupid and close-minded and bigoted. And then at the end of all days, you come to me and go, all religions are equal, all religions are valid, and what you did on the cross was totally unnecessary because I did my own thing and you should let me in. Something in the back of my head that just sounds like Jesus going, why, why would I do that? Why would I make such a sacrifice for my people? Why would I live the life I lived? Why would I die the death I died? Why would I do all that? If for no other reason than to make a way. He is the only one who died for you. He is the only one who stepped out of heaven to be a human, to be the image of God among us to model the way of Jesus, to model what it means to live in response to God, to die that death that we deserved, to find victory over Satan's sin and death in the resurrection. And there's something in us that wants to broaden the pool instead of just telling someone about our Savior, telling someone about the work of Jesus. And there's something in us, I don't know what it is, that makes us want to 
marginalize what he did or relativize what he did and go, that was a great sacrifice. But you know what? This is good too. No. No. What he did on the cross is more meaningful than anything that anyone has ever done. And it accomplished hope. It accomplished redemption. It accomplished salvation. He made a way where there is no way. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. There's little more that we can say besides thank you. There is nothing that we could do, have done, or ever will do that could ever merit such love. There's nothing in us that you look down and said, man, they deserve this. It was pure, honest, unbiased, sacrificial love. And I pray, God, that we would never do anything to diminish what you accomplished. I pray that we would never say anything, that we would never act in any way that would communicate that what you did was anything less than the most significant event in human history. That God might become a man to pay man's penalty. It's unthinkable. Jesus, I pray that we would always remember what you accomplished on the cross and that we would live in humble thanksgiving. Lord, we love you and we praise you in your name. Amen.